Money. It's always a fun one to talk about, right? Uh, you know, uh, oftentimes on the previous Sunday, I like to say, hey, next week, this is what we're going to be talking about. I, I never do that when it's money. You know, you just, we, we, we want you just to sort of show up, you know, unexpected here. Uh, but as we've been talking through these shocking statements of Jesus, this is certainly one of them. You cannot serve both God and money. This is our ninth week out of ten, uh, looking at some of these really difficult things that Jesus said. And I know it might be a little bit easy, you know, to say, okay, I'm a pastor talking about money. You guys are all sort of normal people, whatever that means. Um, I'm not really sure, I guess. I think we're all probably normal. Um, but I know, I know that that comes with a little bit of baggage. Like, here is a pastor going to talk about money. So let me, just, let me just be the first in the room to confess, right out of the gate. I like money, okay? Anybody else? Show of hands. Okay, yeah, all right, all right, yeah. Well, of course, right? I like money. I like money a lot. I like it a whole lot. In fact, this past week, I'm a little embarrassed to tell you that I actually wrote a little letter to my money, uh, a love letter um, that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read, read for you this morning. Dear money, where do I even begin? We've been through so much together and you continue to persist right by my side. There have been times when I've had very little of you, yet my love only grew. And times when I've had more than enough, though, sweetie, it has never felt like enough. You make me feel so safe, like a warm security blanket. You have the power to fix so many of my problems. You give me so many things to enjoy, fun to have, beauty to see, experiences to remember, money. You, you make me feel important. I'm educated, live in the right neighborhood, kids go to the right schools, I wear the right clothes. I'm not particularly proud of my car, uh, but I know you'll come through one day, won't you, money? <laughs> oh, money, just the thought of you, and my, my heart begins to swoon. I, I daydream about you. Sometimes, almost obsessively, I feel sick to my stomach when I fear I might lose you. Sometimes I scheme and hoard just to get a little bit more of you. Money, you are one of my oldest friends and longest loves. We both know what it says, money, written right on your face. In God we trust. I love the little inside joke we have about that phrase. For we both know which God it is that we tend to trust. Aw shucks money, it's you. Faithfully yours, me. Don't look at me like that. Because you know, right? You know any one of us, just about any one of us could have written a letter just like that. There are, there are so many wonderful things that money can do, right? And yet at the same time, it can so quickly suck our allegiance, our affection, our attention, and even our adoration. Money is a great tool, but a terrible God. Money is a great tool, but a terrible God. And just, just think for a moment of all the good things that money can do. Wow. And think also of all the destruction that it can bring. I mean, just think about it, right? Here's a few examples. With money, you can start a business. For money, you can cheat to get ahead. With money, you can enjoy special things with your family. For money, you can become a workaholic and ignore your family. With money, you can care for the poor. For money, you can exploit others. With money, you can spread God's kingdom. With, for money, you can build your own little kingdom. Money is a great tool, but a terrible God. 
And if you think that money isn't much of a problem for you, it probably means that it's a really big problem. I mean, not, not necessarily, but there's a, there's a good chance if, if we don't recognize the struggle that we experience, then maybe you're missing something. Because money isn't content being a tool. It's not what it wants at all. Money wants, money wants to be our lover, our hero, our, our savior, our God. And it doesn't, it doesn't matter how old you are or how young you are. It doesn't matter how much you have or how little. Every one of us, right? We feel the tug of money. Well, turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 16. Because this morning, again, we come to yet another shocking statement of Jesus, where Jesus says to his disciples, you cannot serve both God and money. And the interesting thing about this shocking statement, as opposed to some of the other ones, is that this isn't shocking because it's hard to believe. In fact, many of us would probably say, yeah, we, we believe that. We know we can't serve both. What's shocking is how hard it is for us to actually live that out. We know that you cannot serve God, both God and money. But oh, how we try. Money is a great tool, but a terrible God. So this, this morning in this text, it's, it's a difficult text, and we're going we're gonna to try to have to wrestle through some of these things because Jesus begins with this really confusing parable about money, uh, and then he moves to some really important teachings that, that help sort of flesh us out. And so we're going to try to learn from this shrewd scoundrel in the story that Jesus tells how to become a shrewd steward. Wait a second. Jesus wants us to learn from a scoundrel? Yes, he does. And let me just make one quick clarification before we jump into Luke 16 here. This is the hardest, most debated parable of Jesus. I mean, I, I, truthfully, I read more commentaries this past week than I ever do, and I'm still confused about some of these details. And so I'm going to do my best this morning to, to tell you what I think Jesus is getting at by telling this story. Uh, and, but for the most part, we're going we're gonna to stick to kind of the main point, which is what most people agree on, uh, rather than getting lost in some of the details. Does that make sense? This is a tough story because, again, there's this scoundrel, and Jesus says, go be like this guy, essentially. We've got to work through that, all right? So Luke 16. Now you can follow along in your Bibles. I'd encourage you to do so. Uh, But I'm going to just try to sort of retell this story so we can enter into the scene uh, in which Jesus is speaking. So you follow along uh, by all means. So you've got to picture it. Jesus is there with his disciples, as he often was. And he began this story. He says, there once was a rich guy. For once was this rich man, and, and we don't know a whole lot about him. It seems later on that he's a good and generous rich man, but we'll see that in a moment. But here's this rich guy who has a manager, literally a steward. Uh, the manager was the guy who, who ran his estate. He, he was sort of like the accountant slash bill collector slash foreman slash just about anything else, right? This was a good job for the manager, and again, this, this rich man, most likely, he's a, he's a decent individual, a wealthy landowner. I kind of picture him a little bit like Lord Grantham from Downton Abbey. Anybody Downton Abbey fans? Okay, yeah, a few of you. Okay, so it's just sort of this, this wealthy but very benevolent individual. 
He has a large amount of land. He has a lot of people living on his land. They are his tenants. They farm the land and they give him a a portion of the proceeds as their rent, right? And like Lord Grantham, in fact, we're just going to call him Lord Grantham throughout this. Just (laughs) indulge me. Um, But like Lord Grantham, this guy cares for his people, I think. He, care, he cares for those who, lives, who live on his property. But the manager, who really takes the, the focal point of the story, he's not working out too well. Okay? And in fact, rumors are beginning to spread about this guy that he is uh, wasting his master's possessions. That he's, he's not necessarily doing anything um, unethical at this point. He will in a moment. But he's just lousy at his job. And so Lord Grantham calls the manager into his office and basically says to him, I've been hearing some things. What have you got to say for yourself? How do you, how do you defend these rumors? Silence. The implication here, as Jesus tells this, is that this guy really is guilty. He really is just sort of lousy at his job. And so the wealthy landowner says to him, well then, I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, turn in your books. We've got to do an audit. You're fired. You're done here. Crud. <laughs> uh, you know, what, what am I going to do now? And, and so as this, this manager makes the journey back to his own office to retrieve his master's books, he begins to think to himself, what? What on earth is next for me? And, and as he thinks, you can see it in the text, as he thinks, he, he realizes, he knows that he's kind of a puny guy, okay? Uh, he, he knows that he can't become a laborer and hire himself out that way. He also knows that he's a proud man, and so he can't just go out and, and start begging. And if you think about it, he especially can't beg from the people whose bills he'd always collected. That would be awkward, wouldn't it? So what is he going to do? And he also knows that, that once the master sees the books, he's not going to get a good letter of recommendation. And there's probably not going to be any, any severance to go along with this. So here, here's what this manager knows at this moment. Judgment is coming for the mistakes he's made. He's blown it in his job. And now he's going to pay for it. That's, that's what he knows. So he's, he's got to think fast now before, before word gets out in that community, right? It's a tight-knit community there. If you kind of picture this, this wealthy landowner, all of that, they all know each other. They're all interconnected with one another. And so this guy's got to think fast, and he decides that in that moment that he, he needs to steal from his master. But he doesn't want to really steal, steal, because he knows that, that prison is not going to be a better option, right, than being unemployed at this point. And so he begins to think, maybe, maybe, just maybe, again, knowing that, knowing that his master's a good, generous, rich man, maybe there's a way that I can manipulate the circumstances to somehow come up on top. To put him in a place, my master, where, where he can't really touch me, and yet at the same time get exactly what I want out of this scenario. Maybe, he thinks. Maybe there's a way that I can use money now to get something better than money later. 
What's better than money? Connections. Friends. So in verse 4, then, he's made up his mind. He knows exactly how to get a new job, ASAP. And it, I mean, he's so, I mean, if, he'd, if he'd used this level of ingenuity and creativity when he was employed, he may not have lost his job. I mean, what he does here, if you think about it, is brilliant. It's deceitful and wicked, but brilliant. Remember, he still has the books. Nobody knows that he's been sacked. And so while he still has the keys to his office, he calls two meetings with the master's two largest debtors. One at a time, individually. He calls them into the office. And so he sits down with the, the first debtor, and you know, he's trying to continue to the, the ruse that he's still working on behalf of his master. And he sort of just subtly says, remind me again how much you owe my master. 875 gallons of olive oil is kind of the equivalent of that first measurement. Back then, it's estimated that that's around three years' wages. So take your annual salary, multiply it times three, and then you kind of know what this debtor feels, right? Talking about some serious cash, right? Quick, the manager says. Write down on your bill that you only owe half of that. Well, that seems like a pretty good deal, right? You know, what, what debtor wouldn't possibly jump on this opportunity? And, and he, he, knows, he knows that his master is a generous and good man. I mean, it seems maybe a little bit fishy, a little bit hasty, but at this point, you kind of just want to believe what you want to believe, right? That's, that's, I mean, picture the grin on this guy's face. Imagine if your mortgage lender called you in, right, and did the same. Cut your payments in half and cut your principal in half. That's a pretty good day. And so even as you think about this, this debtor leaving this office, I mean, he's going to go and he's going to have a party, right? This is ta- we're talking neighbors and, and friends and, and family. This is kill the fat and calf kind of good. This is unbelievable. And he's excited. And I picture the manager and the debtor walking to the door, I should say the ex-manager, walking to the door of his office. You know, the, the debtor's still just sort of radiating, right, with joy. And the manager's saying, you know what, actually, and, and by the way, and this, this is completely unrelated, but are you hiring? And then debtor two comes in. And the manager does pretty much the exact same thing. There are going to be celebrations in that village tonight. You can believe it. And this manager just made some really good friends, didn't he? Well, after a bit, the the word begins to get out. It probably didn't take that long, right? Um, people begin to, the commotion builds in this, in this small, tight-knit village of, of what has just happened. And, and so Lord Grantham, right, he, he hears what's, what's going on. And of course he does. If you think about it, he's the hero in this scenario, right? I mean, he's the, the good and rich, benevolent, kind man who cut their debts in half. He, all of a sudden, is being loved on like never before. He's the town hero. 
course, a massive portion of his wealth is now gone unintentionally. But that's still the position that he's in. So he summons the ex-manager back into his office. But I mean, think about it. What is he going to do? Right? That's why this guy is so, is so brilliant. What, what? I mean, yeah, legally, he could go back. He could go into those parties on his property and give them the bad news. Ruin the celebration in the entire village in which he is the master. That's not a very good option, is it? I mean, that, that's part of the reason why I think he's, so, he's such a, a, a generous and, and good man. What choice does he have? And so essentially, he says to the manager, Well played. Very shrewd, you scoundrel. Did I mention you're fired? Can I have the books now? Get out. But now the manager has friends in high places, doesn't he? He knew that judgment was coming for the mistakes that he had made. So he used money now to get something better than money later, connections. He used his money to make friends in high places. And then Jesus turns to his disciples and says, be like this guy. Really, Jesus? I mean, I can only imagine what the disciples thought in that moment. You, 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 want, you want us to be like, like, like this guy. Jesus says, here's this thief, here's this low down, dirty, rotten scoundrel. You disciples could learn a thing or two from this guy. And Jesus, I mean, he doesn't, he doesn't recommend him for his dishonesty. Of course not. It's his shrewdness that's so remarkable in this story. And we can learn from negative examples, can't we? I mean, we do that all the time, don't we? I mean, if you want to learn how to have a healthy marriage, you can learn a lot by watching good marriages, and you can learn a lot by watching bad marriages, can't you? I mean, we, can, we can learn from Christians, and we can learn from non-Christians. We can, we can learn from everyone, right? There, there is something to be learned in every lesson, in every, in every place. And so Jesus isn't saying, be exactly like this guy, okay? We, we know that, obviously not. But he is saying that if you look closely, there's something that you can learn. Two things, and I've already said them. Money is a great tool, but it is a terrible God. Money's a great tool. Like this scoundrel, every one of us are stewards. Or managers. It's the same word there in the text. A steward is someone who cares for something that doesn't belong to them. We all, God is our creator, we all work for the master. And every one of us is called to be a good steward. That, that means that we don't, we don't own our money or our house or our 401k. God owns those things every penny. Kids, students, that means God owns your toys and your Halloween candy um, and any allowance you might have and your parents' stuff. God owns that too. And our job is simply to be stewards of his resources, to do what God wants us to do with his stuff that he's entrusted to us. 
So whether I am sitting down to, to write a check for my tithe or my mortgage or my vacation, it doesn't really matter, essentially. It's still all God's. And so every decision I make reflects what I think about God and who he has created me to be. Because he is the owner of our resources. Every bit of them. For money is a great tool. And with this tool, we need two things from this story. We need to be shrewd and we need to be faithful. Be shrewd. That's sort of the most obvious lesson to learn from this story. Um, and we'll pick up reading now because now, now we're to the point. So the story is over. Jesus has told the story. And now for the next really six or seven verses, Jesus explains what he's getting at by this story. So verse, verse 8 then is where he picks up right in the middle of verse 8. And it's kind of confusing because here's what Jesus says. He says, For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. I think generally what Jesus is saying there is that sinners are really good at dealing with sinners at using money. You disciples could, could learn a thing or two. And so this guy, scoundrel he may be, he knows how to use money. He's shrewd. Being a Christian doesn't mean that we think money is bad or that wealth is bad or stuff is bad. That's, that's not it at all. It's a tool. And so as Christians, we need to be shrewd in the way that we use it. I mean, shrewd essentially just means clever, right? Creative, wise, perceptive, smart with money. And that applies in every area of life, doesn't it? I mean, if you're a business owner or leader, if you're, if you're a lawyer or an investor or a banker, or even with our own personal budgets, our own finances, we're going to be shrewd because it's God's resources, not ours. We need to be wise and creative with our use of God's money. And the shrewdest thing of all, verse 9, Jesus says, I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. Money is going to fail. I mean, when it fails, right? Jesus says that. Just like, just like with this guy when he lost his job. But before it fails, Jesus is saying, invest it in something better than money. Friends, connections. Shrewdly use your money as a tool so that when it fails, you'll have something better than money to rely on. What, what this manager does is despicable but brilliant. Knowing that money would fail, he found a way to secure a better future for himself. Are you following that? Okay, wait a second, Nathan. Let's just get this straight. Are you saying that what, what Jesus is getting at um, is that our shrewd use of money can buy friendship with God? That we somehow, you know, purchase our own Ticket to heaven. Is, is, is that what Jesus is saying? Close. But not quite. Be, because we, we know that the, the Bible teaches that we don't, we don't earn our salvation. We can't buy any of it, right? The gospel says that Jesus has earned our salvation for us. That there's nothing we can possibly do to earn our own way. We know that can't be true. 
So what could Jesus possibly mean here? Well, I think it comes out in the next couple of verses. The next, the next point here with be shrewd is be faithful. If money's a tool, use it faithfully. Jesus isn't telling us to purchase our friendship with God so that we can make it into eternal dwellings. That's not what he's saying. But he is saying, I think, that our faithfulness with this tool is a huge indicator of our spiritual life. That the way we use our wealth, whether it's $10 or $10 million, the way we use our resources demonstrates who we worship, who we trust, and who we love. It comes out a little bit in, in verse 10 here. Look at what Jesus, how he continues. He says, One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much, and one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth... Who will entrust to you the, t- the true riches? If you can't be faithful with money, again, whether it's 10 bucks or 10 million, if you can't be faithful and shrewd with, with money, then that's an indicator that you probably aren't going to be faithful and shrewd with true riches. And really, there, there is nothing in the world, nothing, that reveals who you trust, who you love, who you worship, who you serve, like your wallet. I mean, nothing quite reveals who it is that we trust, like our use of money. And if you don't trust Jesus, and this is what he's getting at, if you don't trust Jesus, then you have no friend to get you into eternal dwellings. That's, that's the point that Jesus is trying to make here. The way that we use our money it reveals our soul. It reveals what lives deep within us. And I, and I think you know that. I think, I think we know that. I think we know that money reveals a lot. Because picture it this way. Imagine if we were to throw a big party here together. Okay? It's a fun party. Okay? Um, and part of that party, though, was that we were all, and every one of us, all of us in this room, we're already there. You've got all, everything you need. We were to have our credit card statements, our bank statements, 401ks, our W-2s, our giving receipts, etc. Everything. And that, as part of that party, and we sure know how to party, right? Um, we're going to look through every single person's finances. Sounds like fun, doesn't it? <laughs> that sinking feeling that I get which probably some of you get as well, there's a possibility that that might be guilt. Because we know very little would reveal who we are, who we love, who we worship, who we trust, like doing that together. It's a a scary reality, isn't it? I mean, like, like the servant in this story, we all know that judgment is coming for our sinful mistakes. But we can use money now as evidence that we have a better friend than money. That we have something better than money. That we have connections with the God who saves us. Really, I think what Jesus is doing in this story is is saying exactly what he says elsewhere. When he says, where your treasure is, so is your heart. And if that's true, then store up treasures for yourself in heaven. Your use of money is not going to save you. It's not where your salvation lies. But our use of money might very well reveal whether or not we've been saved. 
Because little reveals who we trust, who we love, who we worship, like money. Money's a great tool. It's a great tool. So how are you using this tool? I mean, by the world's standards, right? I mean, every single one of us is rich. I mean, by the world's standards, historically, culturally, geographically, we are the wealthiest people who's ever lived in, the, in all of human history. But if you trust Jesus, you will be generous. And if, and if you're not generous, you've got to ask yourself, do I trust Jesus? Do I, do I really trust him? Do I really believe that he is going to give me what I need? Or is it that other God, money, that so quickly creeps up? If you're not generous, truthfully, not only does it reveal a little bit of who you are, you're just missing out. Because you're still using money as a tool, but you're using it as a tool for little more than your own personal gratification. And life can be so much better than that. I mean, that's, that's the example that we get with God, right? With, with Jesus Christ himself, that Jesus, he gave until it hurts, and then he gave a little more. He gave up the very riches of heaven, poured out his entire life for us. And we're created in that same God's image. We're made to be like him. We are made at the very core of who we are. We are created to be generous beings. And when we're not generous, we're fighting against our created nature. We're fighting against who God made us to be. That you and I, we can, we can give until it hurts and then give a little more. I mean, honestly, sometimes we talk about a tithe, right? Or, or giving 10%. But truthfully... I mean, for, for most of us, the, the kind of resources that we have, the incredible generosity we've experienced, I mean, 10% should just sort of be a bare minimum. This is what he's called us to. God has been so generous to us, and yet so often we tend to be so stingy to him. But generosity is the best inve- investment that we can make, and it's one of the clearest indicators of who we trust. So be shrewd, be faithful. I think that builds us towards generosity. And if you're not, I mean, if that doesn't describe you, shrewdness, faithfulness, generosity, then you've got to ask yourself which God it is you're serving. That I've got to ask myself. Because money is a great tool, but it's a terrible God. And that's, that's kind of where Jesus goes as his teaching continues. And, and this is why it's so hard, right? Because it is a terrible God. It, it wants to just sort of control us and take over. And I know that, right? That's why I wrote a love letter to my money. We, we struggle here. We know that money is a powerful tool. And so often I would so much rather use it as a tool for my own gratification. And really everything around us says that's how it should be, right? I mean, it says that, that we are, we are the sum total of our income and our possessions, and we should grab onto everything we can, and we should hold onto it and protect it as, as, as strong as we can, because that, that's who we are in our culture. We are our stuff. In fact, I recently watched the absolute worst commercial of my life. Um, we're going to watch it together. Let's talk about stuff. The stuff that lives on your computer, your smartphone, and on the web. It's who you are stuff, where you've been, and where you're going stuff. 
the stuff that connects you with the people you love. But sometimes, bad stuff can happen to your stuff. Your stuff can get lost, even stolen. The thing is, stuff happens, which is why your stuff needs Norton. Because what are you without your stuff? Better yet, without your stuff, who are you? What are you without your stuff? Better yet, without your stuff, who are you? Who am I without my stuff? I mean, Kelly can, can vouch. When I first saw that commercial, I wanted to murder my television. I mean, I, I don't know if I've ever been more angry at TV than in that moment. I mean, stuff, right? Stuff is supposed to define me? That, that decides who I am? I mean, do you see how ridiculous that is? And yet, that is, that is the culture. That's, that's the message that we embrace. It's the message that I so often actually, in asking that, think, well, yeah, maybe there's a little truth to that. Who tells you who you are? Because that's your God. I mean, whoever defines reality, whoever says whether or not you have a meaningful life, a good life, whether you're good enough or that you are significant enough or safe enough and secure, whatever answers those questions, that is your God. Money is a fine tool, but is a terrible God. And Jesus says in verse 13, right? He says, no servant can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. We try. Oh, how we try to serve both. But Jesus says it cannot be done. If you love money, he says, you hate God. You despise God. Those, those are the options that Jesus gives us. And again, it's not, it's not that money in itself is bad. Nowhere does the Bible say that money or wealth is bad. It's not money that's the root of all evil, right? Paul says it's the love of money that's the root of all kinds of evil. That's, that's what the text says. But we know that our hearts so quickly run in that direction. And so, so what can we do? What can I do to avoid money worship? I think there are two things here. Be pessimistic and be watchful. Be pessimistic. Now, those of you who, who know me have probably just think that I've really, all of my life, wanted to weave that as an application point into a sermon. And you're right, I have. I mean, this is like bucket list stuff. So, um, be pessimistic. Not about life, not about everything, but about money. Be a pessimist when it comes to money. Really, I think that's what Jesus says, right? He says, when it fails. There's no if there with Jesus, right? In verse 9, when it fails, then what? Because no matter, no matter how much you have, no matter how little you have, it is going to fail. It's not going to give you what it promises. I mean, it will for a little while. Help you feel good about that. It's not going to, it cannot deliver what it promises. And if that's true, and we know that, right? I mean, don't we? I mean, I think as, as people who, who follow Jesus, we, we know that money will fail, that stuff will fail. We know that. And yet we still hold on to it. We still strive for it. I mean, if we know that it's going to fail, then why do we worship it? Why do we rely on it? Why do we trust it? Why do we ask it to give us things that only God can give us? Why do we place such unrealistic expectations on it? When it comes to money, be a pessimist. Second, be watchful. Be watchful. This one, this one hits so close to home for me. 
be watchful because it can so easily become our God. In fact, before we even know that we're worshiping, in fact, probably, there's probably a lot of us here that money is our God and we just, we don't even, we don't even know it yet. But it's the one that we love, the one that we serve, the one that we worship. Watch yourself. Watch your lives. Watch your heart. Watch your checkbook. Watch your lifestyle creep. This, this is a big one for me. I mean, I'm always shocked how I can look at things in my life that used to be, I used to consider luxuries, special treats, that are now just, well, of course I, I have that. Whenever I want, I have that. And so what, you know, what luxuries now do I have and enjoy that, that next year are just going to be assumed? What, watch that creep in your life. I know that it happens. We've got to watch out. We've got to watch out for one another as well to see which God it is that we serve. And to do this, let me just offer a couple of diagnostic questions for all of us to see if, if we are worshiping money, serving money instead of, instead of God. One question to ask is, uh, where do I look to know that I'm safe? Where, where do I look? Because money promises to protect you, doesn't it? I mean, it says it'll fix every problem or almost every single problem that you will encounter. If you just have enough money, you can, you can fix it. So, you know, when I, when I make, make this much money, then I'll, then I'll know that I'm secure. When I, when I have this much in savings or this much in my 401k, then I will know that I'm safe. But when money fails, when it fails, who will protect you? Be watchful. Another, another question, ask yourself, where do I look for happiness? Because again, money, money promises to satisfy. It promises to make all of our dreams come true, to, to satisfy all the deepest desires of our hearts. Where do, you, where do you look for your happiness? Is it the next big vacation, the next trip to the mall, the next little bit of entertainment, or whatever things that I use to distract myself from the desperation that I, that I feel? What, what are those things that we run to, to to fill that void, to make us happy? I mean, why would we look to God to satisfy us if we think money will do the trick? But when it fails, because it will fail, who will give you joy then? Who will, who will make you happy then? Be watchful. And a third question to ask, where do I look to know that I'm significant and loved? Because again, money, money promises to tell you how important you are. I mean, that's one of the, that's one of the biggest in our culture, I think. It's a, it's a status thing, Right? You've got the right house, the right neighborhood, kids in the right schools, you, you dress a certain way. You, I mean, education and status, all of this is sort of wrapped in. It tells us that we're significant. It tells us that we're good enough. It tells us that our life means something. Because after all, who are you without your stuff? Right? But when it fails, because it will fail, then who's going to tell you that life, that your life counts, that your life means something? Be watchful. Money wants to be your God. It wants to be my God. And it, it really, I mean, it promises everything that any decent God would promise, doesn't it? It promises a security, significance, and satisfaction. The, the, the deep longings that every one of us crave. And we're, we're made in such a way that we long for those things. And if you look to money to give you any one of those things, then money is your God. But Jesus is better. Because Jesus also promises security, satisfaction, and significance. That's, that's why you can't serve both. They're both offering the same things. And so you, you have to choose, where am I gonna, which, which God am I going to look to to tell me that I'm secure? 
to tell me that I have a place, to tell me that I'm, I'm significant and loved? Which God am I going to look to to fulfill my desires, to, to satisfy my needs? Who's it going to be? Both offer the same thing, but only Jesus can come through on his promises because he purchased these things for us with his own blood. Riches that we can't even hardly imagine. Money's a great tool. Be shrewd, be faithful. But as a terrible God, be pessimistic, be watchful. Jesus is the better God. He's the better choice. For Jesus became poor for our sake to offer us a kind of riches that we can't even imagine. You cannot serve both God and money. Can't be done. So who will you serve? Well, the band is going to come up here and, and sing a song for us called God and Money to help us sort of reflect on this question, to spend a few minutes before we, we join in singing, to reflect, reflect on the question, who will I serve? Who will I build my life on? Who is my God? Who do I trust? Who do I love? But as, as they're, they're getting ready, let me just mention, there's also one set of characters in this story that we didn't mention at all. Uh, in verses 14 and 15, uh, Luke tells us that the Pharisees are eavesdropping on this entire conversation. Luke calls them their lovers of money. And Luke says that they ridiculed Jesus for saying this. I mean, they just, they just heard the, the exact same things that we heard. And they laughed at Jesus to his face right there. And, and then Jesus said to them, you can go on justifying yourself as long as you want. But God sees your heart. And so as we listen together, will we go on justifying ourselves? It's so easy, Right? Because there's always somebody who makes more, who's always somebody who gives less, who has a, a less posh lifestyle than you. We can always say, well, I just can't afford to be generous at this point. I mean, we can justify ourselves to our blue in the face. Will we go on doing that? Or will we say with the psalmist, search me, God, and know me? Know my heart and see if there be any iniquity in me and lead me in your way, your life, your truth.